The bow of God's wrath is bent, and the arrow made ready on the string, and justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow, and it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. You know who said that? Joel Osteen. It's a joke. <laughs> Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards said that. And you might be thinking, wow, that is harsh. That comes from a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And if you've never read it, I would encourage you to read it. You can find it online. Jonathan Edwards was mightily used by God. Maybe, maybe the most brilliant intellect that America has ever had or produced. And he was used by God to spur what we know as the Great Awakening, one of the, one of the greatest revivals, true revivals to ever break out in this country. He was mightily used by God because he was clear about both the goodness and the severity of God. He was clear about grace and wrath. He preached God's glory, God's holiness, God's sovereignty, God's majesty. He preached man's sinfulness and need of mercy. And listen, he was very fond of preaching on the sweetness of Jesus and the gospel of grace. But he was well balanced and he was greatly used of God. And he was bold to preach God's holiness and man's sinfulness and the wrath that is due us because of our sinfulness. You know, it is said of the congregation that was in the building that day hearing the sermon sinners in the hands of an angry God that they could almost feel the flames of hell licking up around the seats because the Spirit was powerfully at work working repentance in the lives of the people. Now, it wasn't a legalistic sermon, but it was a, it was a tough sermon. It was a, a hard-hitting sermon. It was a sermon that called sinners out, and, but it pointed them to the mercy of God available in Christ. And today, we see Paul before Felix as he's been brought to Caesarea. He's being tried by Felix. And he is before the governor of the area. He's before the power. He's before people with authority. He's before people who are not necessarily known to be nice people. He's before people who can have his head. And eventually will, Nero, in Rome. But today Paul preaches his version of sinners in the hands of an angry God to Felix and Drusilla and whoever else was in the room that day. He was faithful with the gospel to preach the truth to whoever was there. And in this instance, it was a pretty high gathering with, with Felix and the, and the governor and the court and the people who were there um, listening. So today I want to look at Paul before Felix, how he preached his, sinner, his sinners in the hands of the angry God sermon. We'll go through uh, more quickly the first part of the chapter and then focus in on Paul's message. But what I want us to see 
and want us to think about, want us to take away from this sermon, is faithfulness with the gospel means embracing it both as a comforting message and a terrifying message. And knowing when to discuss each one. Being willing to speak the truth about God's holiness and justice and sin and, and the wrath that we deserve. As well as being willing to speak about God's mercy and grace and forgiveness that is available in Christ. You have many people who will preach always on this side, sort of a hyper-grace, never mention sin, never mention wrath, never mention hell, never mention things like that. That's not a biblical approach. When we become a man-pleaser, we only want to say things that please people. Well, Paul was taking a chance not only of displeasing people, but of actually losing his head. And you see that in the rest of the apostles and all who've ever been faithful. So faithfulness to the gospel means embracing it as both a comforting message and a terrifying message and knowing when to discuss each one. The gospel, our presentation of the truths of the gospel, our presentation of the problem of God's holiness and man's sin and justice do that should be a terrifying message to sinners. We, sh we should in some sense be terrified before we ever are relieved and comforted by the gospel. It's okay. So let's look first at Paul on trial. And I'll do this quickly because a lot of this is repetition and it's stuff we're going to see again. Um, so I'm not just skipping over things, but I'm trying to not wear you out also in the process by preaching the same sermon every week. But we'll go over it a little bit. And so Paul is brought to Felix now. He's brought to the governor. He's been whisked out of Jerusalem because they were ready to kill him and the tribune found out about it. So he sent half of his army, basically, to get Paul out of town, to get him to Caesarea to the governor, to, to sort of punt, if you will, to the governor and let the governor decide the case. So Paul has been brought safely to Caesarea and now the, the opponents of Paul and the ones who are making accusation have to travel. It says down, speaking geographically, Jerusalem is higher than Caesarea, so down to Caesarea. They've come down to accuse Paul. The governor has, has brought together the court and he's, he's saying he's heard, he knows what the case is about and he's, he's giving them opportunity to speak. And they accuse, they accuse Paul of, you know, after sort of uh, speaking overly nicely about the governor, we'll see in a little, I'll speak a little more about that. He was not a good governor. He was not, he was not good, a good governor at all. All this stuff they're saying to him, really not true. There's nothing excellent about Felix. But they're saying that Paul is a plague. He stirs up riots. He's, he's a league, leader of the sect of the Nazarenes. What is that? A follower of Jesus of Nazareth. That much is true, right? It's not a sect. It's the truth. It's also called the way. It's what we call Christianity. He said that he's a leader. Well, he is an apostle. And it says he tried to profane the temple. That's not true. We've, we've seen that before. He did not take a Gentile into the temple. He was purified. He was going to seeking to, for unity. It ended up working out in a different way. But it says he was trying to profane the temple when we seized him. That was sort of a lie stirred up against him. And then they just say, by examining him, you'll, you'll see that this is true. And all the Jews, I guess it says the Jews joined in the charge affirming these things were so. 
Not really sure. Did they say, Amen, yeah, you know, I, I don't know. They, they just affirmed that what, what was being, Paul was being accused of as a man who was leading a sect, leading people astray, causing dissension and riots. He really deserves death. That's why we were, were uh, taking hold of him. But, uh, but we, we lost him to the Romans. That, they didn't say that, but that's what happened. So um, then after the Jews speak, the, Felix nods to Paul. And notice Paul doesn't say a lot of things about Felix that are false. He's not going to sort of try to make him out to be a good guy when he's not. He just says that he is acknowledging his rule over the nation. He's happy to make his defense to him. Uh, he, he, he said, it's not been a very long time since I was seeking to worship in the temple. He uses the 12 days there. And he says, these people can't prove what they're saying against me because it's not true, basically. I'm not one who stirs up riots. I was not stirring up the people. There was not a crowd around me. I was personally and privately seeking to worship God and fulfill a vow in the temple. When they made up this story about me and came in and caused all of this trouble, which we know from the previous sermons that Paul knew trouble was coming when he went to Jerusalem to take the offering and to, to be with his brothers there in Jerusalem out of love for the church, out of love for the Jews. But he was not causing trouble. But he says, I confess to you that according to the way, that's Christianity, we've seen that already, which they call a sect. Now he says, he said, I worship the God of our fathers. Who? He's talking about our Jews. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm the one that's rightly worshiping God in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah whom He has sent. He said, I worship God, the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. I believe in our lingo, I believe all of the Old Testament. Right? And I have a hope in God. And then he brings up resurrection. And that's what broke up the meeting in, in, in Jerusalem. But he has a hope that there will be a resurrection of the just and the unjust. There will come a day, you read it at the end of Matthew uh, chapter 25. You can read it in Daniel. You can read it in a lot of places. There will come a day when there will be a resurrection of the just and the unjust and there will be a, a judgment. And he said, this is all in accord with our faith and our hope. And he, he said that he came to bring alms and while he was doing this, they found him not creating a tumult, but some certain ones were lying and making accusations against him. He said, they ought to be here. And he said, let these men tell you if they found any wrongdoing in me. Other than the one thing I cried out, I believe in the resurrection and, and sort of split up the meeting. So they're saying Paul is guilty. Paul is saying, I'm not guilty. I'm worshiping God according to the scriptures that they claim to believe. I'm worshiping the God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I have done nothing wrong and you should be able to figure that out. So Felix says in, in 22, he, he, he gives quick justice. This is kind of a characteristic of Felix, this kind of putting things off and brushing things aside and sort of being irresponsible. He says, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, Felix, having an accurate knowledge of Paul's faith, he put them off saying, when Lysias, remember Lysias is the tribune that was in Jerusalem. When Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody. He's got liberty 
It says, and then none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. So being a Roman citizen, he's there, he's held, but he has a lot of liberty. His friends are able to come in and minister to his needs while we wait on justice delayed. Justice delayed, justice denied, right? That's a summary of things we've already seen, a summary of some things that we will see again. But my point here was the Jews accused, Paul responds, Felix just kind of procrastinates. And, you know, he could have had all of this ready ahead of time, and he didn't. But this is Paul on trial. But I want you to watch what Paul does. That's Paul on trial. What Paul does is flip the script and put Felix on trial before God. So Paul is on trial, but this is where I want us to focus this morning, is that Paul puts Felix on trial. Look first at the audience. It says, after some days, after he had procrastinated, after some days Felix came down with his wife Drusilla who was Jewish and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. That's verse 24. So Felix and Drusilla and whoever was part of that court and there, they're there and they're calling Paul in to speak about faith in Jesus. So this is the audience. This is the royal audience. This is the this is in the, you know, you think about going to you know the governor's mansion and, and getting an opportunity to speak to the governor. This is the audience that he had. And and these two people are are interesting in some ways. Felix, his name was Antonius Felix. He's about 50 at this point. He's about 50 years of age. He's the governor of the, of the district there of Judea and Samaria. He's a former slave that was elevated by Claudius Caesar to the office of governor. Uh, the Roman histor historian Tacitus described him as cruel, licentious, and base. He had a particularly cruel bent towards anybody who would disturb peace. Overly cruel. He was licentious. We might think fleshly. It just whatever it is. What if you know in modern lingo, if it feels good, do it. And base, you know, I, he's a party guy. He's not a responsible guy. He's not a good governor. He will eventually be replaced, we'll see. But he was a wicked ruler. That's the point. And while he was in Judea, Felix was attracted to Drusilla, who at this point was 16 years old and was married. And he lured her away from her husband and got her to come live with him as his wife and they're eventually married. She was the daughter of Herod Agrippa I, one that, you know, killed James and all earlier. She's... She was already married, but, you know, it made no difference to Felix. He enticed her away and got her to leave her husband. And church history knows Felix as a particularly bad governor. A particularly bad governor. And who is Drusilla? Remember, he's 50. At this point, she's about 20. Sitting in with the governor. She's about 20 years of age. She's Felix's third wife. Felix is her second husband. He found her when she was 16. We've heard the story. 
And they have a son, Agrippa. I guess he would be Agrippa III by this point. But anyway, this is an interesting side note, historical side note. Some 20 years later, everybody's heard of Mount Vesuvius, right? Mount Vesuvius and the destruction of Pompeii and Herculaneum and all the people that were perished in that eruption of Mount Vesuvius. Drusilla and her son Agrippa were two of the ones who perished in that eruption. Not a nice way to go. But they did perish. That would be some 20 years later. But at this point in time, in God's providence, both Felix, the wicked governor, and Drusilla, the wicked Jewish wife, are sitting in the court in all of their pomp with an opportunity to hear the gospel preached. So Felix and Drusilla are, 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 are sending for Paul and they heard him. Notice what Paul wants to talk about. He, he, his first in, issue is not to deal with his own legal troubles. He wants to talk about faith in Jesus. So as, he, as we break down his message, remember we're, he's speaking about faith in Jesus Christ. And he presents to them a terrifying but necessary message. With Now remember, these are just summaries. I, I mean, really, I wish we could hear or read the entire sermon. But this is a summary of what he spoke about. I'll try to break it out just a little bit. But listen, this is a message we all need to hear. Whether we're Christians or non-Christians, we need to hear this message. We need to understand this message. And so Paul is preaching Christ to Felix and Drusilla. And it says this in verse 25. He reasoned, now watch, he's reasoning about righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. Notice why I said he put Felix on trial as he had the opportunity to speak to them. First, let's talk about righteousness. What does that mean? Well, at, really at a sort of simple level, it's doing what God requires. Doing what is right. It's acting according to God's commandments. It's, it's, it's often contrasted with wickedness, which is disobedience and rebellion and violation of God's commandments or sin. So it would be... You know, the flip side of sin is, is obedience to God's Word, obedience to God's commands, out of love for Him, obedience with joy because we love Him and want to glorify Him, keeping His Word, His law in thought, word, and deed. Righteousness is not... It's not there's not a way to say, okay, I'm 50% righteous or I'm 75% righteous. I'm either righteous or I'm not. It's kind of like pregnant. You're either pregnant or you're not. There's no such thing as a little bit pregnant. Right? But so he's preaching God's standard. He's preaching God's commands. He's preaching the fact that God loves righteousness and hates sin. And he's telling Felix and Drusilla that God requires a perfect righteousness. If I'm going to be accepted by God based on what I do, I have to keep God's commandments purely and perfectly from cradle to grave in thought, word, and deed. Always thinking the right thing. Never thinking the wrong thing. All for God's glory. Out of love for Him. Always saying the right thing. Never saying the wrong thing. Always doing the right thing. Never doing the wrong thing. Perfect righteousness. Really... 
You don't even need to say perfect because righteousness is, it's either righteous or it's not. All who would be accepted by God must be perfectly righteous. If you don't hear, if you hadn't heard anything I've said up until now, all who would be accepted by God must be perfectly righteous. If you will be accepted by God, it will be because you are perfectly righteous. Either by your own doing or another's. But not in part, no degrees. You either are or you're not. Just a few scriptures to back that up, and there are many. Let me just give you one from the Old Testament, one from the New. Deuteronomy 27, 26. Cursed be anyone. Watch this. Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. And all the people said amen at that point. Cursed is anyone who does not confirm the words of his law by doing them. All of the words. James 2 says this, James 2.10, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of just a little bit of sin. Whoever keeps the whole law and fails at one point has become accountable for all of it, has become guilty of breaking God's law. It's broken. So you can see that Scripture says, and there are a lot of other places, we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The glory of God requires the, the living for His glory, the righteousness He requires. None are righteous, no, not one. All have turned aside. Together, become corrupt. Because none of us confirm the words of His law by doing them perfectly. So he's, he, notice, how, notice the amazing part of this. He's standing before the governor. His life is, he's on trial. He can lose his head and what he wants to talk about is righteousness. Because he values the gospel over his own soul and he values even their souls over his own soul. Look at the second thing he mentions. Righteousness. Secondly, self-control. Self-control means to exercise complete control over one's desires and actions so that one's life lines up with God's commandments. To exercise control over our desires and actions. Because our actions flow out of our desires. Want to know what you desire? Look at what you, know, you do. What you love? He says God calls us to self-control to righteousness and self-control. Righteousness requires self-control. There's no way to keep God's commandments without self-control. And true self-control flows out of love for God. And we know Galatians 5 is a fruit of the Spirit. But that's in a little bit. Felix and Drusilla are living in complete self-indulgence. They have no care about the righteousness that God requires. They're not trying to restrain themselves. They're living in complete self-indulgence. Although dressed well, you know, look well, look clean, presenting as everything's good and everything's right, but there's no self-control in their lives. Look at 2 Timothy 3, 1-5. And watch this. 
This is from the last letter Paul writes, and he's writing to Timothy, his son in the faith. And he says this, but understand this, that in the last days, just let me stop right there. When are the last days? Since the resurrection of Christ, we've been in the last days. Read Hebrews 1. And it's, we're not waiting for that. It's now. But in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents. Wow, children, look at that. In the, in the middle of this list is disobedient to parents. God says obey your parents. Ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control. That's why all of this stuff, evil is flowering in the life. Reckless, swollen with conceit. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now watch this. This is evidently, he's telling, this is evidently the religious crowd. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. No self-control. Self-control, without self-control, the life doesn't degenerate into righteousness. It degenerates into unrighteousness. And it would look exactly like, and Felix and Drusilla know this, Paul is describing righteousness and he's talking about self-control and they know in their own hearts that they don't have, they don't have any of that. But in some sense, the Spirit is at work here. Last thing Paul says is judgment. That word there means to judge a person to be guilty and liable to punishment. To judge as guilty, to condemn condemnation. Paul's point is God will settle all accounts. Things might go well in this life and you might seem Felix and Drusilla to be doing just fine. Things might feel good and you might have a lot of riches and pomp and think you've got the world by the tail. But there's coming a day when God will settle accounts according to righteousness and He will test every person to see if they are righteous, to see if they have exercised self-control. And He will find out they have not. God will settle all accounts. He will punish all sin. No sin will be simply ignored and swept under the rug. God's not like a grandparent who's enthralled with their grandchild and that grandchild can do no wrong. And even when they do, it's just, oh, isn't it cute? Just expressing themselves. Sweep it under the rug. And the, the parents of the child who are those people's children say, these are not the people that raised me. But grandchildren can have a bad magic. You need to watch it. But Paul is saying, if you're not righteous and walking in self-control, you're in danger at the judgment. So he preaches judgment. Hebrews 9.27 says, And just as it is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Acts 17.30 and 31, we've already seen this, but I can't mention it too much. The times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now, watch this, He commands all people everywhere to repent, to turn away from sin because they love God in His grace. Because He has fixed a, way, a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom He has appointed, and of this He's given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. Jesus' resurrection proves there will be a judgment. And Paul is authoritatively to Agrippa and Priscilla. 
putting forth the truth of this judgment. Just like John the Baptist did when he saw the Pharisees and Sadducees coming in Matthew 3, 7 to 10, he said, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to the baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to watch this? Flee from the wrath to come. In verse 10, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees and every tree, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. You see what Paul is doing? In, in some sense, and he's not being unrighteous about it. In some sense, he's saying, you think you are sitting there and judging me. You need to know that there is a much higher authority than you who is God, who someday is going to judge you for your unrighteousness, your lack of self-control. Your wickedness. So Paul turns the tables and put Felix on trial. He preached faith in Christ concerning righteousness, a righteousness they did not possess, concerning self-control, which they did not exhibit, and concerning the judgment to come, which was certain to overtake them. I mean, just like Jesus did with the Jewish leadership, right? How will you escape hell? I mean, the, the legalists are the ones who hated Jesus because He pointed out to them that they were not good, that they were unrighteous and needed a Savior when they thought being Abraham's children was enough. So you see the heat of this message? You see why maybe I, I, I sort of thought about sinners in the hands of an angry God? Because Paul in love is reasoning with them from the Scriptures that he had written on his heart. He's not probably not breaking out scrolls as he's doing it about righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. And watch what? This is, watch Felix's response. This is a proper response. God's justice, it should, this should be our response. Look, in the, in the ESV it says, Felix was alarmed. That sounds rather subdued in English, doesn't it? He was alarmed. The word means he was terrified. He was knee-knocking terrified. This message had jolted him and he was terrified. And he was in fear. So he repented and trusted Christ. Right? No. But he was extremely afraid. And what should have followed that fear was repentance and faith. But watch what, and we've seen it in his life already. Watch what he does. He procrastinates. He was alarmed and he said, go away for the present and when I get an opportunity, I will summon you. Go away. Paul, this is not the kind of preaching I like to listen to. I like to listen to preachers who are going to make me feel good about myself. And promise me a bunch of blessing if I'll give them a little money. You're, you're just being negative. No, he's being truthful. Ultimately truthful. He's in love sharing the truth of God with Felix. And it has caused Felix to be terrified. Don't have any opportunity, or probably it wasn't appropriate, but that Drusilla said anything, but there's no evidence that either of them was permanently affected by this. They were stirred, but they weren't changed. 
They were diverted attention. They procrastinated. It says, Felix says, go away. Go away, Paul. I'll think about this. We'll talk again about this. He didn't say, because I'm shaking in my shoes and I want you to shut up. But, but he, 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 he was scared, but he wasn't convicted in a biblical sense so that he was willing to turn from his sin and trust Christ. I, I've seen it over and over and over. I mean, I've been the person. God has been gracious. I remember when I was young hearing the gospel and saying, there'll be time for that when I'm old. Right now I'm having too much fun. I can remember pushing God off and he, and he was merciful. One time when we were living here, I was working at Ashley and there was a young lady that worked at Ashley who was going through some particularly hard times. And so I set up an opportunity for her to speak to Cindy. And, and she came and she spoke to Cindy and Cindy just gave her the gospel. Because that's really what she needed. She gave her the gospel and called her to faith. Well, in a, in a similar vein, and we don't know what happened between these two events, but, but she didn't repent and receive Christ. She didn't turn at that point. She sort of procrastinated it. A matter of weeks later, she died in a fiery automobile crash. Procrastinating dealing with God when He is pricking your heart about your sin and your need of a Savior is not a good thing. But see, Felix is just demonstrating who he is. Look what it says. At the same time, he, he says, When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. Now watch verse 26. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed by him. He wanted a bribe. He was, he was waiting for a bribe to let Paul go. And of course, Paul is not going to bribe him because that would violate Scripture. Paul's the one who's loving God here. And so watch this. We, we skip over stuff like this. When two years had elapsed, that's a long time. That's a long time to be in confinement, even if it is a generous confinement. Two years, day after day, having to deal with these knuckleheads and them calling you in and presuming to be interested when all they want is money. And I'm sure Paul did that graciously. But then it says, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus and desiring to do the Jews a favor, he left him in custody. So Paul never lived up to what he thought Paul ought to do. He's kept seeking a bribe, but he left him in custody. And so we'll leave Paul there in custody and he, he will be tried by Festus who will sort of try to betray him and he'll appeal to Caesar and end up going to Caesar and uh, being beheaded by Nero, Nero eventually. But let me, let's just stop there and uh, think about what we see is that Paul before Felix presenting the most important thing for Felix to hear, even if he didn't believe it, was this message about righteousness and self-control and judgment so that if, if he had sort of had any interest at all and had any patience at all, he would have heard about repentance and faith in Jesus and forgiveness. But he didn't. He didn't. I want to do a thought experiment with you, and I want you to, to participate in this as I try to get this out of my eye. Um, this weekend, and I showed it to Cindy, I, and you may have seen this video. It was a video of New York in 1911 that had been 
sort of updated to like 4K high definition with sound and everything. I even saw another video where one guy actually identified the family that was riding in that car that they were taking a picture of. Um, Sarah said she saw the video, so that's why I'm saying that. But one thing, I was amazed by the technology that we could do that. It was very interesting to hear the horses' feet clap and see the, you know, the, the, the old, old cars and the people's dress and just them walking around New York City. And then it struck me, every one of these people are dead. That was 109 years ago. Even the kids are dead that I saw. How many of them knew Jesus? How many of them were witnessing for Christ? How many of them had rebuffed the gospel? 109 years ago, I got to see people walking around New York that I know had faced the judgment that Paul was talking about. And I want to ask you, where will you be in 100 years? Think about that. We don't like to think about death, but we must. If I can prepare you to die, I will be, have prepared you to live. Where will you be in a hundred years? Some of us don't have to wait that long. Where, we, where will you be in 50? Where will you be in 20? Where will, <laughs> Mike's like, okay, that's nice. Because you, the resurrection guarantees you're going to be somewhere. The resurrection guarantees there's going to be a judgment. The resurrection guarantees you will stand before God and answer. And so the same, Paul, same message Paul preached is good for us. Let me ask you, are you righteous or are you unrighteous? And do you realize that that will be determined, your status will be determined by what you do with this gospel I'm preaching to you today? Because you won't be able to leave here and say, sorry God, I never knew. As though that would get us off the hook. Are you righteous or are you unrighteous? Are you ready for the judgment? Where will you be in a hundred years? Because you will be somewhere. What do you do with your fear and your guilt? Don't be a... a, a don't be a Felix. He's pushing it down. He's procrastinating. He's justifying his life. Will you stand alone at the judgment without a perfect righteousness, having not exhibited self-control? And will you leave that judgment under condemnation? Or will you be justified? See, what do you do with your fear and your guilt, your conscience? I think Shakespeare's Hamlet said, conscience makes the cowards of us all. Certainly had made one out of Felix. He was wanting Paul to go away. What do you do with your guilt? Blame it on somebody else? It's just common for all men? Do you cry out to God and turn and trust in His Son? I mean, those are the choices. Rationalize, divert, procrastinate, explain away true guilt for having failed to live righteously. See, I know something about you. And I know something about me. 
Because the God's Word tells me that none are righteous. No, not one. None seek God. All have turned astray. There's none good. No, not one. So we all deserve condemnation from God. Will you reject the Gospel and face that alone? Or is God at work in you? Or has He been at work in you? I know a lot of you know Jesus. Have you come to the place where you were afraid, yes, convicted of sin, so that God was at work in you, you heard the Gospel? What is the Gospel? Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. He was buried. He was raised the third day. And that salvation is a free gift to us in Him if we will humble ourselves and turn from sin to Him and receive it. Sam did a great job talking about repentance and faith this morning. I'll post that audio. You can listen to it. God's not looking for a perfect repentance or a perfect faith. He, he works in us by His grace, a willingness to turn from our sin and receive Jesus. To repent. He works in us a hatred of sin and a love and trust in Jesus that is willingness to receive Him. See, Christ lived... Christ lived a perfect life while He was on the earth. He's the only one that we can say in Him was no sin. He kept God's law and thought, word, and deed perfectly from the moment He was born under His own law, God and man, to the moment He was crucified and buried. He was even keeping the law on the cross. And so He provided a perfect righteousness for His people that He gives to us through faith. And then He died to pay the satisfied justice and pay the penalty for our sin. So the wrath due us was poured out on Him. He being God and man could drink that cup dry and take eternal hell upon Himself for all of us on that cross in, in some hours and be able to say before He died, it is finished. So when I ask you if you're righteous, if you're not trusting in Jesus, you're not. You might be a little bit externally righteous, but all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But if you're trusting in Jesus, no matter how you feel, you are righteous. Because His record has been imputed to you. Your record has been imputed to Him. He died to pay the penalty for your sins so that He might give you a righteous standing. And justification is God, you know, through the Gospel being preached and God uniting us to His Son uh, in faith, his righteousness credited to us, then God sees us hidden in Jesus and says over us, righteous. That's justification, being declared righteous on the basis of Christ. So if you are trusting Jesus, you are righteous and you need not fear the judgment because it was our sins that held Him there and all the things that we've sung. If you are not trusting in Jesus, you need fear the judgment. If you are not afraid of the judgment, that's not a good sign for you. That's an extremely seared conscience. Please follow Jesus, not Felix. Don't procrastinate. Don't put Jesus off. Don't reconcile Him to just another good person. He is the God-man who came to live and die for our sins and be raised from the grave and reign. And He is coming again. And when He comes, it will be judgment time. Turn and trust and rest in Him. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish, 
but have everlasting life. Kids, teenagers, 20-something, 30-something adults, I plead with you this morning. Turn from your sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and in Him alone for salvation. And if you do that, that's because He's at work in you saving your soul. I hope everybody in here is a believer, and maybe you are. I dare not preach like you are. But I hope you are. Let me talk to the believers just one second. This includes me. What are you doing with the gospel? Believer, what are you doing with the gospel? I hope you're rejoicing in it and resting in Christ through it and basking in His grace and mercy to you in Christ. This is so common today, I have to ask you, are you watering it down so it won't be terrifying? If we take away the bad news, there's no good news. It's so hard to speak the truth to people, isn't it? It's so intimidating. It's never comfortable. We talked about that the other night. But we must be willing to tell people about God's holiness and justice and His law and what it requires. Maybe we're not watering it down. Maybe we just refuse to speak it. Jesus said that if we're ashamed of Him, He will be ashamed of us when He comes. But see, legalism shouldn't push me to speak it. What should push me to speak it is love for Him and gratitude to Him because of His grace to me and His dying for my sin. Maybe you're stepping out in faith like Paul and feeling like you've blown it. Don't quit. Step out in faith like Paul. He spoke truth to kings, those who could have his head and eventually would. Trust and rest in Jesus. Ask Him to use you. Step out in faith and be willing to speak and share His gospel. Paul is a good example. He was, be, he was willing to call governors to account and point out the gospel. We, we will never re receive Christ if we're not willing to accept that we're wrong about something. Paul was faithful to preach his version of sinners in the hands of an angry God. And there's no sense or evidence that we have that either Felix or Drusilla were converted, but that doesn't mean Paul failed. He succeeded because he represented Christ. Let's remember as we go away and think about these things. Don't forget about that thought experiment. Where will you be in a hundred years? But let's remember as we go away what I wanted to be the main point. Faithfulness with the gospel means embracing it both as a comforting message and a terrifying message and knowing when to discuss each one. To live as Christ. Let's pray. Father, oh Lord, if there's anyone who's not trusting in you, Lord Jesus, either in this room or listening when it's posted on the website, we pray that you'd be working by your work of grace, working faith and repentance in their heart. It can be as simple because it's a work in the heart that flows out as what the tax collector said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. We've heard the truth of your son. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I, I trust in you, Lord Jesus. Save me.
God's promise is to all who trust in Jesus that he will receive them. He's not looking for perfect faith. He's creating true faith, which is starts out baby faith and grows. And those of us who know you, Lord, may we be delivered from all legalism and be established in grace so that we're in awe of what you've done for us in your son and the cross and your mercy and justice coming together there so that our sins were punished and forgiven in Christ and his righteousness is given to us. May that produce in us a love and a passion that drives us out to tell others about this great Savior that we know. May we be well familiar with your your goodness and your kindness and your mercy and your grace as well as your severity and justice and the perfect requirements of your law so that we'll be good Christians and good witnesses to those all around us. Lord, save those who don't know you this morning. Grow those who do. May we revel in your grace and live for your glory. It's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.